The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. This morning's message will be based on Matthew chapter 6, verses 5-15. through 15. It says... And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive yours. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. For may God, may God bless the reading of his word. Right, thank you, Lisa. Let's pray this morning. Father, we know that it is your will that we be conformed to the image of your son, Jesus. And we also know that the way this happens is by your spirit and through your word. So please, Holy Spirit of God, take this passage and use it to accomplish your purposes within each one of us, Lord. Lead us to Christ and conform us to his image. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Uh, This morning we again find ourselves in Matthew chapter 6 for a third and final message on prayer uh, as we begin this new year with a focus on prayer. Now, two weeks ago, we learned about the power of prayer. Then last Sunday, we learned about the posture of prayer. And now this morning, we are going to be talking about the practice of prayer. So having first laid a biblical foundation for prayer in the first message and then talked about the mentality we should have toward prayer in the second, we're now ready to dive into the nuts and bolts of how to actually pray. Because you could be thoroughly convinced that prayer is essential for the Christian life and also have an overwhelming desire to pray, but all of that probably won't get you very far unless you have at least a basic understanding of how to actually engage in prayer. It's kind of like performing an oil change, right? Because I could be thoroughly convinced that changing the oil on my car is absolutely essential, right? I could even go out 
and uh, get all the best oil changing equipment and, and get expert advice and have a generous portion of time set aside for changing the oil on my vehicle. But unless I know how to actually go about doing that and you know the specific steps that I need to take to drain out the old oil and put in the correct amount of new oil, well, I'm probably not going to get very far on my oil change, am I? And so that's the, the way it is with prayer. And so this morning, we're going to be looking, uh, or we're working our way through the Lord's Prayer, as it's commonly called, from Matthew 6, where Jesus spells out how to actually engage in prayer. But first, let's look at the context here. Before Jesus explains how to pray, he first tells us how not to pray. In Matthew 6, 5 and 6, he says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, we know that Jesus isn't prohibiting all public prayer since Jesus himself uh, prayed publicly, as is recorded throughout the, the four Gospels in the New Testament. Rather, Jesus is warning his disciples about praying in order to be seen by others. You see, there were people back in ancient times... Um, such as the Pharisees, who loved to pray these eloquent prayers in the middle of crowded places and out loud so that everyone could see how spiritual they were. And so, in case you thought virtue signaling was a recent phenomenon, it's not. Right? There was plenty of virtue signaling going on in the streets of Jerusalem during the first century. And Jesus is saying, don't do that. Don't pray in order to impress other people. He then continues in verses 7 and 8. And when you pray, do not keep up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Now, last week, we learned how the term Gentiles in the Bible usually refers to people who aren't Jewish, right? It's an ethnic term. But in this context, the term simply refers to those who are far from God and who don't have a biblical view of God and who are essentially pagan in their spiritual orientation. And as Jesus alludes to here, prayer in the pagan world was often characterized by mindless repetition and various magical incantations in which saying the right words and saying them as much as possible was what really mattered. Like it was all just very mechanical rather than something that was from the heart. It was more about saying prayers than about truly praying. Yet Jesus tells us not to do that. Instead, we should pray from the heart. 
It's not about how many words we say or, for that matter, how eloquently we're able to say them. Instead, it's about the heart. Neither quantity nor eloquence mean anything if what we're saying doesn't come from what's within us. And then after issuing these warnings, Jesus gives his disciples a model prayer to illustrate the manner in which they should pray and the kinds of things they should focus on in their prayers. And and that's really the main idea of this larger passage, if you're taking notes. Jesus gives his disciples a model prayer to illustrate the manner in which they should pray, number one, and the kinds of things they should focus on in their prayers. And when I say the manner in which they should pray, I'm mainly talking about the remarkable simplicity of this model prayer. In contrast to the lofty eloquence that would often characterize the prayers of those who were praying to be seen, Jesus gives his disciples a prayer that's notable in part just for its simplicity. And that should be an encouragement to us. Guys, God isn't looking for fancy religious language in our prayers. He just wants us to be real with him and to tell him what's genuinely on our hearts and to make our needs known to him even if we only employ the simplest of terms in doing so. Yet the main thing I believe we can glean from this model prayer is an understanding of the kinds of things that we should focus on in our prayers. After an initial address to God, Jesus gives us a total of six petitions. The first three are explicitly for God, focusing on His name, His kingdom, and His will, while the final three are for us, asking for provision, forgiveness, and deliverance. So the prayer begins in the first part of verse 9 with an address to God. Our Father in heaven. Now, since we talked about this idea of God as Father pretty extensively last week, I'm not going to elaborate on it a whole lot this week. If you didn't catch the sermon last week, feel free to listen to it on our church's website. But I do think it's worth emphasizing just how revolutionary this is. God isn't some distant deity who's far removed from our struggles and who is too busy just running everything else in the universe in order to care about us and our needs. No, he's a father. A father who loves us more than we can ever imagine. And delights in showing us his goodness. And showering us with his blessings. Now, of course, we weren't always able to approach God as Father. We had to be first adopted into His family in and through Jesus. But now that we who are Christians have experienced that adoption, we can approach God as the tender and loving Father that He is. Yet even as we do that, let's remember that our Father is also in heaven. And as we observed last week, those twin truths have a wonderful way of 
balancing each other out. Whereas viewing God as our Father conveys the warm intimacy and, and love and care that He has for us, understanding that He's in heaven reminds us that He's also the all-powerful Lord of the universe. He's not just some big teddy bear who, uh, you know, has a, a big heart but no power to actually do anything. No, he rules sovereignly over all things from the throne of heaven and yet is also amazingly attentive to our prayers. So that's how we should approach God, as our Father in heaven. Then in the second part of verse 9, we find the first petition. Hallowed be your name. Not only is this the first request of the prayer, it's also the foundational request. It's this desire for God's name to be hallowed that serves as the driving force behind all subsequent requests here. This is the heartbeat of the entire prayer. Now, for God's name to be hallowed simply means that he be revered and exalted. So it's a prayer for God to receive the glory that he deserves. And actually, this is the ultimate reason why we even have prayer in the first place. As Jesus says in John 14, 13, that we looked at a couple weeks ago, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. Why? That the Father may be glorified in the Son. So as we pray, hallowed be your name, we're aligning ourselves with God and adopting his purposes as our own. And of course, it's the Holy Spirit's work within our hearts that enables us to, to do this and, and causes us to, to long for this and adopt it not only as the driving force behind our prayers, but hopefully as the driving force behind our very lives. Then the next petition we find in this model prayer is, Your kingdom come. And in order to understand this petition, we first have to understand that God's kingdom is a major theme in the Gospel of Matthew and refers to the sovereign rule of God and the establishment of a realm in which everything is in accord with God's desires. So it's not a place. Like, I can't give you directions to the kingdom of God. Rather, it's a new reality, a new dynamic that's entering into this world as God progressively restores everything to the way he originally intended for it to be. And there are two things you have to know about this kingdom. In one sense, the kingdom's already here, but in another sense... It's still to come in the future. So this is what we call the already but not yet aspect of the kingdom. Sometimes you'll hear theologians talking about that because in one sense, the kingdom is already, but in another sense, it's not yet. It's uh, kind of like when someone starts being a parent. Uh, I remember when my wife Becky was pregnant with our first child. Uh, I, of course, was uh, a parent, but I didn't really feel like it yet, right? Now, in reality, I legitimately was a parent, right? There was a, a human being 
in existence in the womb that I had helped to conceive. But I hadn't met this child, couldn't play with this child, and this child wasn't costing me any money yet, right? And uh, you know, so I remember it was Father's Day uh, that we were at the church we were a member of, and the pastor of the church gave all the fathers an opportunity to stand up during the worship service and receive applause. And uh, I remember just not being sure whether to stand or not because, uh, you know, I was just, I was just conflicted. Uh, also, we hadn't yet announced the pregnancy, but uh, <laughs> uh, think about it, that would have been a pretty cool way to announce it to everyone, though, I guess. I don't know. Uh, so I, I felt like I was in this weird period of time where my fatherhood was, in one sense, already but in another sense, not yet. And that's similar to the way it is with God's kingdom. There's a sense in which God's kingdom was inaugurated or started during Jesus's earthly ministry. Yet we're also still waiting for the final consummation or fullness of the kingdom when Jesus comes again. When that happens, uh, we won't just have a foretaste of the kingdom will have the whole thing. And so back in our passage, when Jesus instructs his disciples to pray, your kingdom come, there are at least two distinct aspects of that. First, this is a prayer for God's glorious rule to be strengthened and extended in this present world in a very visible way. And more than anything, I mean, there's a few facets to that, but more than anything, that involves the advance of the gospel so that more and more people will come to embrace Jesus and worship Jesus as the Lord and King of their lives. And so with that, let me just ask those of you who are Christians, do you long for that? Like, is the desire for more people to embrace Jesus, a cornerstone emphasis of your prayer life? Does it have a unique place in your prayers? You know, I really can't think of anything that's more important for you to pray for than specific individuals in your life who don't yet know Jesus. You know, a Christian consistently neglecting to pray uh, for people to come to faith is kind of like a military general during wartime, not making any effort to actually take ground from the enemy. <laughs> if you'll just allow me to speak frankly, like, like, what the heck are you doing in your prayers if you're not praying for people to be saved? Then in addition to that, your kingdom come is also a request for Jesus to return soon in order to establish his kingdom in its fullness. And that naturally leads us to the third petition of this model prayer in the second part of verse 10. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's a lot of overlap between this petition and the, the one we just talked about. Because in many ways, God's kingdom is the uh, expression and, and manifestation of God's will. And yet, the will of God can be more broadly understood as anything and everything 
that God desires, especially as seen in the Bible. So it includes everything from reconciled relationships to our own spiritual growth to the spiritual renewal of the church and to justice in society and everything in between. Everything you could possibly think of that would be pleasing to God is included in this prayer, your will be done. This prayer also expresses surrender to God's will. Even if it sometimes doesn't make very much sense to us, even if we don't understand it. It's essentially saying, like, God, I want certain things, and I'm praying for certain things, but at the end of the day, I surrender to whatever your will might be. Your will be done. Then moving on to verse 11, we cross over from petitions relating primarily to God to petitions related primarily to us. Jesus instructs us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. And that's really a request not just for literal bread itself, but for any and every need that we have, especially those more practical in nature, no matter how ordinary or mundane it might seem to be. We shouldn't hesitate to pray for whatever practical things are necessary in order for us to have reasonably happy and healthy lives of service to God. So whenever you hear that car making a funny noise, go ahead and pray that it wouldn't be anything major. You know, my laptop just kind of cracked open this morning, like 15 minutes before the service. It won't, it won't even close. It's downstairs open right now. I'm praying, God, help me with my laptop. Give me this day my daily bread here. Um, so just don't hesitate to bring those needs to God. Because remember, guys, your father loves you. He loves you. And therefore, nothing is too mundane for you to take to him in prayer. We then find a, a fifth petition in verse 12. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now Jesus is speaking here not of uh, literal financial debts, but rather of our sins. Right? Uh, the Bible's clear that our sins separate us from God, and they keep him from hearing our prayers. Uh, as Isaiah says to the people of Judah in Isaiah 59 too, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. So in order to, for us to pray as God intends us to pray and to have an expectation of him hearing our prayers, we desperately need his forgiveness. And that forgiveness is only possible through Jesus. See, Jesus became a human being and entered this world so that he could rescue us from our sins. And the way he did that was by dying on the cross to pay the price for those sins. Um, to borrow the financial terminology of verse 12, we owed an enormous debt to God's justice because of our sin. A debt that was infinitely beyond our ability to repay. 
but Jesus stepped in and paid that debt on our behalf on the cross. As the old saying goes, Jesus paid a debt he didn't owe because we owed a debt that we couldn't pay. Jesus then victoriously resurrected from the dead three days later so that we also can share in his victory over sin and death. Yet the Bible teaches in order for us to experience that, that victory and receive that forgiveness, that we have to put our trust in Jesus and Jesus alone to rescue us from our sins and, and to be our all-sufficient Savior. And then after we do that and we become Christians, we still need to ask God to forgive us our debts, as Jesus instructs us to pray, not because we need forgiveness in the same way that a non-Christian needs forgiveness. Rather, the sense in which we need forgiveness as Christians is similar to the way children need to be forgiven when they've sinned against their parents. You know, when one of my children sins against me, they don't at that point cease to be my child. But the fellowship between us is broken. Similarly, when we sin against God, we haven't stopped being his children or lost our salvation, but the, the personal fellowship between us and God has been broken and needs to be restored. And that's the sense in which we pray, forgive us our debts. We're not asking God to save us all over again, but simply to restore the close fellowship between us and him that's been hindered by our sin. And then the final petition of this model prayer is found in verse 13. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, we know from James 1.13 that God doesn't directly tempt us in the sense of enticing us to sin. So the prayer we find here in Matthew 6 is best understood as a request for God to keep us from circumstances uh, that would prove to be a temptation for us. And that prayer is coupled with the prayer for God to deliver us from evil or uh, from the evil one, depending on how you translate that. The point, either way, is that we need God's protection. So those are some of the key things that we should focus on in our prayers. Like these six petitions of the Lord's Prayer are designed to draw our attention to six of the most critical areas for us to focus on in prayer. However, uh, I would also like to briefly uh, share with you a couple of helpful methods for organizing your prayers. Um, now, I do think it's possible to use the Lord's Prayer itself uh, not only as a, a guide to what's most important to pray for, but as a guide to actually organize the prayer itself. But there are, in addition, two other uh, very well-known uh, methods that many Christians have found helpful. One of them is known as the ACTS method, A-C-T-S, where uh, that's an acronym for Adoration, Confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. Basically, adoration is giving God praise and honor for who he is, 
marveling at his holiness and goodness and grace. Confession is owning up to the sin in our life and purposing in our heart to turn away from that sin. Thanksgiving is verbalizing our gratitude toward God for all that he is and all that he's done. And finally, supplication is asking God to do things and laying our needs and the needs of those around us at his feet. And in case you haven't noticed, this is the way that I begin just about every worship service we have here at Redeeming Grace. Uh, in my prayer at the beginning of the service, I employ the Acts method. And that's no accident, right? I'm hoping that as you hear me pray according to this method over and over, week after week, that that'll kind of get in your head a little bit and that you'll find yourself as well praying in a similar way during your own times with God. So uh, it's kind of a little bit sneaky, I guess. I, I feel like, a, I don't know, a parent sneaking in a bunch of vegetables to a dinner casserole or something like that. I don't know. Also, uh, not only do I employ the Acts method at the beginning of the service, but those of you who attend here regularly have also probably noticed I employ another method at the end of the service, a method that's designed to help us pray in response to specific passages of Scripture. And that method consists of rejoicing, repenting, and requesting. So first, we rejoice in whatever the passage reveals to us about who God is and the ways in which he's been so good to us. Then we repent of whatever sins the passage brings to our minds, whatever ways we fall short of what God wants us to be. And then finally, we request God's help in living according to whatever we've read in the passage. So rejoice, repent, and request. And so let me encourage you, now that you have these tools here, to set aside an amount of time every single day to engage in focused prayer. That's my challenge for you. Set aside some time. If you don't already have it, um, set aside to engage in prayer. And I would recommend the same time and same place every day so that it becomes a habit in your life. And uh, I'll just share with you very briefly what I personally try to do each day uh, because I think there are a few ways in which my own routine might be instructive. Um, As some of you know, I I do wake up uh, kind of early um, at 3.30 each day, um, seven days a week. I then go downstairs, open the fridge, take out a nice carton of iced coffee, and I take a few swigs of that. And yes, since I am the only one who drinks that iced coffee, I do drink it straight out of the carton, like a man, right? Um, So then after that, I try to get out for for a morning one by around 3.45. Then after uh, running a few miles, which can be very refreshing in the wintertime. Uh, I come back inside and I take a few more swigs of that iced coffee. And by then it's usually around 4.30 and uh, I do some personal Bible study and memorization, which I can describe at another time. Uh, Then after studying and memorizing for around maybe 30 minutes, I do some stretches uh, recommended by my chiropractor. I am getting a little, a little not as young as I used to be. And uh, I do that for around 15 minutes until around 5.15. 
Then I take a few more swigs of the iced coffee <laughs> and proceed to pray, uh, usually from around 5.15 until about 6 o'clock, so usually about 45 minutes. Um, maybe one or two days a week I'll go beyond that and I'll pray for as long as an hour or an hour and a half, but usually 45 minutes. And I'm always, almost always walking around as I pray, just pacing the, the house and um, I hardly ever pray sitting down. And one key feature I want you to notice about this whole routine, first of all, there's several things, but first of all is all the things that I do physically to wake myself up so that I'm mentally alert in praying, as alert as possible. Uh, because like many of you, probably, I struggle with not getting drowsy when I pray. So just notice all the things that I do, right? I, I have the physical exercise with the running and the stretching. You know, I've got the iced coffee, of course, and I pace as I pray. So all of those things are designed to help me be mentally alert in my prayers. Also, um, notice that I study and memorize scripture first and then pray second. Uh, that's because I find it very helpful to have all those biblical truths rattling around in my mind as I engage in prayer. I learned that from George Mueller. Um, it's uh, kind of like the difference between a uh, cold start and a warm start to prayer. So immersing myself in the Bible first gets me spiritually warmed up to pray and also gives direction in my prayers, especially if I'm utilizing that method of rejoicing and repenting and, and requesting that day. In addition, uh, I've also found that this whole routine helps reduce distractions between you know, the mental alertness that, that I try to, to achieve and also um, the Bible study first and finally just doing it earlier in the day as opposed to later in the day, it's before my mind is filled with all of the concerns that will I'll inevitably encounter and that will fill my mind otherwise during the course of every, any given day. So I just end up, by doing it earlier, being less distracted with all those things than I otherwise would be. And yet, make no mistake, I still struggle with being distracted. Um, it's just, it's incredible. How many things will pop into your mind when you're trying to engage in prayer? So the only solution I know of for this, other than the routine that I've already described, is to simply follow the advice of the Puritans when they said to pray until you pray. That's what the Puritans often advise people to do. Pray until you pray. You know, I'll, I found that I'll often pray for as long as 20 or 30 minutes before I feel like I'm really praying. For the first 20 or even 30 minutes, I'll probably be spending just as much energy battling distracting thoughts as I am engaging in actual prayer. Now, many times during, during, during that period, it kind of feels like I'm trying to walk through this dense jungle and just hack my way through, and every step is just a challenge for me. And sometimes, 
to be honest with you, I never get beyond that point. And that's all my prayer time is for the day. But many times, God shows up in a very noticeable way. And after spending 20 or 30 minutes of, you know, battling distractions and struggling to pray, it just feels at some point, usually in that prayer time, as though just the, the gates of heaven just burst wide open. And I experienced this glorious time of the sweetest communion with God. And it, it feels as though at that point I am really praying. I don't even need the iced coffee at that point, right? It's just that these prayers are flowing out of me and up to God. Prayers for all kinds of things. That, I believe, is what the Puritans were talking about when they say to pray until you pray. Push through until you really find yourself praying. Also, uh, on the practical side of things, it may be helpful for you to know that I do pray through the church directory, um, usually for around 10 people per day. So I pray for those 10 people, not only by name, but also just with anything else that comes to my mind to pray for each one of them individually. And I also keep track of answered prayers uh, using a, uh, just a simple Google Doc on my phone. And that Google Doc has um, lists for some of the other things I pray for. Of course, my family and people that I'm uh, hoping will come to know Jesus, different things for our church. Um, our society, uh, missionaries that, that we support. So just different lists for different things. Uh, you may also be familiar with these prayer bookmarks that we sometimes pass out here at Redeeming Grace uh, that suggest a different uh, focus for our prayers for each day of the week. And then some place for you to write some notes on the back. Um, by the way, a stack of these is available on the resource table um, next to the connection card box, if you want to pick one of those up. Um, and so hopefully all of this has been helpful for you um, as you think about praying. And yet I would like to emphasize that the only way to really learn how to pray is to actually pray. You know, just think about riding a bike, right? I mean, you could go to this classroom seminar, and you could hear hours of instruction about bikes and different bike riding techniques. It might even be taught by some you know, world-famous bicyclist, right, who is able to give you expert advice about every single aspect of bike riding, and he brings in all these wonderful charts and diagrams about bike riding. It's just a wonderful thing, but no matter how wonderful that seminar is, you're probably not going to learn very much about actually being able to ride a bike through the seminar, right? You're, in order to really learn to ride this bike, you're going to have to get on the seat and start pedaling, right? So that's where we're at now. Most of you have now heard three sermons in the past three weeks on prayer. You've had an opportunity to pick up two books on prayer. It's now time to actually pray. Uh, 